0: I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show. It's good to have you listening in. In Layla Motley's debut novel, Kiara Johnson is turning 18 alone. Her parents are gone. Her older brother is living somewhere else. She's earning cash on the streets, and she's at the center of a growing police corruption case. But most of all, young Kiara Johnson is tired and that weariness permeates Motley's prose. Layla Motley is a former Youth Poet Laureate for Oakland, California, and her first novel is titled Night Crawling, and it is one of the biggest fiction titles of the summer. She joins us from Oakland, California. Layla, welcome. It's good to have you on the show.
1: Thank you so much. It's a
0: pleasure to be here. Well, I guess I have to... I don't usually start with this, but I I guess I have to. What's it like to hear... At the very tender age that you're at that you've written a novel that's going to be one of the biggest fiction sellers of the summer because it's extraordinary.
1: Yeah, it's surreal, definitely.
0: Um I'm so grateful. <laughs> okay. I'm grateful. Let's move on with the interview here. <laughs> <laughs> Ready to go. Um, you know, I imagined this heaviness, this weight that Kiara carries with her and I noticed Mm -hmm. that you found both direct and subtle ways to communicate that. And I'd like to hear how you describe what you think about the burdens that she carries. How you thought about that? Mm.
1: Yeah, um, I think that Kiara carries the burden of being alone in a world that requires a lot of her. So her family, um, and her friends and kind of everybody she meets has this implicit expectation that she will handle things. Um, and I think that this is a product of, of the type of, um, of misogyny and, um, and this specific Kind of dynamic that that comes with black girlhood and and she essentially is is given the burden of of the whole family and the whole world and asked to carry it and um and that weighs on her, especially given that no one around her even considers that it would be a burden at all,
0: yeah, it, it's interesting. You say she is asked, but in some ways, as you've noted, there isn't really asking, could you do Mm-mm. this? Is this too much? I mean, there is an expectation just because everyone else has kind of stepped back to say, well, that's not my problem, right? And she steps in. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: she doesn't really have a choice because of the the years and years of being asked not even asked really like you said um, being expected to handle everything by all of the 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 precedent of of that she essentially has her choices taken away from her and we see her throughout the rest of the book grappling with what would it would mean to make a choice mm-hmm. um, even when she's not
0: given one mm-hmm. y- yeah that That heaviness, I guess, I I started out talking about, it occurred to me that comes in a lot of different shapes. I mean, the secrets that she's keeping, the shame that she's enduring for a number of reasons, the mourning that she's experiencing for her lost father and for the crime that Mm -hmm. her mother has committed, and the help that she's not getting from the men in her family. So Mm -hmm. I I imagined you uh, constructing this novel and thinking about layering on all of these burdens Mm -hmm. that she carries. Will you speak to that?
1: Yes, I... I start my novels with, um, a character. And so I started with Kiara and I do a lot of drilling from her perspective. And so in the beginning, especially, I did a lot of thinking about her world and how she would come to this place. And I think that the accumulation of the accumulation of all of this expectations these almost um i think what what ends up happening is that kiara's whole family and world think of her as um a type of assistant to them Mm -hmm. to their to their happiness to their survival Mm -hmm. and because everyone else has their eyes out for their own well-being for how they are going to get through the cruel expectations that the system has also set for them, it leaves Kiara with the more mundane challenges of trying to get through a single day. And so I started thinking about what does it mean to have your entire world consumed by the day-to-day. And that, I mean, that is what poverty is, is having to think about first all of the the small things that a lot of us, I think, take for granted, like how are we going to eat in the morning, and, you know, will there, the rent, is the rent due, and how much might it increase the next time our lease is up, and all of these things that, um, that are even more, um, Difficult for Kiara because of her age and because of how alone she is. Mm-hmm. And because she is so focused on the day to day survival, I think I wanted to create a story that also included the reality that she wanted more. Uh, because I think that we all want more than that. Um, and so I, I based this whole story around what It looks like for a young black girl to have everyone have motives for what she does and who she is that are outside of her own happiness and well-being. And what does it look like for her to try to not only survive, but thrive and become her full actualized self through all of that?
0: So I have so many questions of what what you've said. Um I think it's interesting and notable she has no real space for imagination. You know, for for any of the mm-hmm. mental energy as you've said that goes into dreaming, you know, I- imagining what if I if I got to hear then that might lead to this and that might make my life better down here. I mean You're right. Mm -hmm. She is consumed with the idea of getting through the day and how she's going to survive a lot of the elements that she can't control. Mm -hmm. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And yet, I think she also has these, these moments, these scattered moments where she is able to experience the full breadth and depth of life which includes a spectrum of experiences beyond the the grief and terror that she experiences in her in her daily life and so we see this with Trevor um the 10-year-old neighbor next door and we see this with Ale, her best friend, and these moments where she is given a glimpse of something to hope for. And I think that for me, it was really important that when telling a story about Black hurt, Black violence, um, about police brutality, about death, that all of that is also... Accompanied by the reality that we we always pursue more than that, we always want more than that, and we are more than that. And so, it was really important to me that Kiara experiences these moments that are just full and complete, and um, give her something that she isn't able to get elsewhere.
0: You know, one of the other ways that I uh, that I thought about her was through so much of her life, she's kind of bereft of comfort. And so as you as you note, this friend, Ale, who kind of comes in and out of her life, but when she's there, she's helping, you know, she's feeding um, mm-hmm. and, and providing, I guess, some fleeting comfort. I mean, so mm-hmm. much of her day is just kind of stringing some grim, um, decision-making, I guess, together Mm -hmm. and being in a world that feels pretty absent of comfort. Is that right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. I think that Ole provides her the most basic and necessary of nourishment, which is food, but also she gives her these moments where she can be, more than what her family has expected of her, mm-hmm. I think that Marcus, her brother, especially expects that um, that she handle things and that she do it without complaint. And Ale allows her the space to feel really and to exist and to breathe. And I think that those moments are, are part of what gives um, Kiara a chance to, to experience um, this kind of dreaming that we, we all would hope for her. Um, but at the same time, like, Ale is, is separate from her because they do live in such different worlds. And, in some ways, Ale doesn't entirely understand Kiara's experience, and I think that um, the challenge for Kiara is how much she has to hold inside too.
0: I, I'm really glad you've you've kind of fleshed Ale out a little bit here because, as as we've said, she is Kiara's. I guess what I think of as her one safe space, but. But Ale Mm -hmm. is young, too, and she's carrying a lot of responsibility. Her sister has disappeared Mm -hmm. and never been found. Ale's mother has had a stroke. Ale has had to help keep this small restaurant that they own going. And you say, Mm -hmm. Ale isn't unhappy, but I know she's still dreaming. And that word still struck me because, you know, her life is just beginning, and yet for her it also takes almost everything she has to keep dreaming.
1: Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the reality for most of the characters that it requires a a sacrifice of something else in order to keep dreaming and Kiara has sacrificed herself essentially. Um and I don't I don't know if she is dreaming for half of the book or even most of it, I think that that's what she's trying to get to. Um, Marcus has kind of sacrificed his his empathy, his sister, um, in order to chase these dreams of rap stardom. And Ale wants to dream, once wants more, uh, but also I think deeply loves her home and her family and her restaurant and Chiara and her life and to work really hard to keep that up, um, which which in turn kind of prevents her from moving
0: beyond it. Let's talk about Marcus here. But first, um, if you are tuned in and listening, this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with Lila Motley. She is a former youth poet laureate. For Oakland, California, she is out with her debut novel, and there is a lot of buzz about the novel. It's called Night Crawling. We're having a conversation about the creation of kind of the the center of gravity, the the character at the center of this novel, Kira Johnson. But then all of the way that the people in her life have basically receded – and place their expectations that she'll figure it out, that she'll solve it. And she's doing all of this at like 17 and 18 years old. Layla, I want to talk a bit about uh, Marcus, who is, as we've alluded to, her older brother. He is chasing a dream of being a rap star, a music star. Mm -hmm. And he has kind of thrown... The survival, even the paying of the rent, how they're going to eat day to day back onto Kiara's shoulders. And one of the things that she thinks in the middle of this is we're always trying to own men we don't got no control of. I'm tired of it. And you wrote in the author's note to the novel that you were told to, quote, tend to and shield my brother, my dad, the black men around me. Their safety, their bodies, their dreams. What did the women around you tell you? I mean, was it just understood? How specific, I guess, were the expectations of that in your own life? Um, I think there's an unspoken expectation,
1: as well as a spoken when in at moments um, that Black women are are second in line um and that we are we serve to protect the black men in our lives and i think one of um one of the ways that this shows up is you know we have these talks about police violence Mm -hmm. many of us from really early on and um at least in my life the the expectation was that like this happens to black men and our role as black women is to protect them as much as we possibly can and i think that for um for a lot of black mothers and sisters um this you know puts the shoulder of not only you know grief and and this it, this expectation that we can protect people from something that we have no control over um, but it also leaves us that much more vulnerable and so I think that a lot of what happens is that no one no one really pauses to think about what do black women need and um, and leaves us unsafe, it leaves us unprotected, it leaves us fragile and without any recognition of that.
0: Do you think there is also an expectation that you will, as a young Black woman, you know, sublimate your ambition to what is going to be required to, as you've said, deliver, you know, the safety, the dreams for the men in your life? Is that just expected? Yeah, I think
1: um, I also think about motherhood and Mm -hmm. Black motherhood in in particular and the ways that like when Black women become mothers, we're expected to give everything to our children, particularly to our Black boys and protect them at all costs and teach them how to be safe in a world um, that is, is not looking out for their safety and I I think that all of these expectations, um, they cut off our abilities to dream because how are we supposed to dream about ourselves when we're asked to think about others always?
0: You know, I just had a a conversation recently with Frederick Joseph, who is out with a new book about the patriarchy, and we had this long discussion about an incident in which his mother, a, a really, one of those kind of before and after experiences as a mm-hmm. child that he remembers well. And the decisions that his mother, who was alone, a black mother raising a black son, as you're, as you're mm-hmm. speaking about, and looking back and saying, the decision that she made to encourage me into violence in that situation was both, mm-hmm. you know, deeply harmful but also mm-hmm. there was no support around her and she was doing what she mm-hmm. really felt she had to do. D- does that sound familiar, I guess, or understandable?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that black women are often backed into a corner in which anything we do has, will fault will be seen in it. And that's why, you know, all, there's there's these myriad of tropes you know, whether it's the Jezebel or the Mammy or, you know, the aggressive Black woman. And all of these things are are essentially um, finding critique in the ways that we exist when we are given very few choices. Uh, I think many of us know that anything we do will um, is is open to critique. Someone will find fault in it, and that leaves us with, um, you know, just a choice that we have to make, knowing that we are going to see consequences for it, no matter what.
0: Do you think your mother the the women around you your mother your aunts whoever whoever was you know with you as you were growing up would be surprised at the way you've internalized what the expectations were spoken and unspoken and the way you've written about them in in this author's note
1: Um I'm not sure at all um <laughs> why I think that I think we all make sense of it in our own way. And, um, you know, that for, for many people that I know that it is more dangerous for us to kind of dissect and analyze the ways that we exist than it is for us to kind of move blindly. Um, mm. so I'm not entirely sure, what the women in my life would think about that i think that m- maybe they'd find some truth and maybe some of it would um also feel challenging for them
0: you just i think you just used just the word dangerous to analyze mm-hmm. that why
1: because when we recognize how unsafe we are it heightens our feeling of, you know, danger, trauma. Um, I think it, it makes it that much more scary for us to continue to move and exist in the world. And when we recognize all of the ways in which we are not going to be looked out for, then we realize that we are the only people looking out for ourselves, and that's a lonely place to be. Um, So, I, yeah, I think it is dangerous.
0: You know, you you add in the author's note that your own dreams and safety were, quote, secondary, that there was no one and nothing that could or would protect me. So I guess I want to know where this assuredness and... Uh, confidence that, you know, you could get into the world of poetry and you could write a novel at such a young age. We haven't actually Mm -hmm. disclosed how old you are, have we? (laughs) (laughs) Should we? Sure. Yeah. How old are you? I'm almost 20. I'm 19. You started writing the novel at 17. And and let's come back to that. But, But back to that question that so where does the assuredness and the confidence come to? In a, in a environment, I guess, where you're saying it was really all about the men, there wasn't a lot of mm-hmm. thought given or communicated to my dreams and my ambition and safety. Where does it come from?
1: I mean, I think I, I looked out for myself and um, – in at most times, I wasn't assured or confident. I think uh, writing has always been something that I need to do. And whether I took it, you know, into the publishing sphere or brought it or not, I was always going to write because it, it kind of felt like breathing to me. And so I I wrote and I wrote on my own and I wrote two novels, one when I was fourteen and one when I was sixteen. Oh and then Night gosh. Girling was my wow. third at seventeen.
0: Oh my gosh. gosh. Yeah,
1: and I showed them to no one. And <laughs> I think most people didn't even know that I wrote them. Um I think I kept it very close and kind of on a whim. I I thought maybe I can do this and I, you know, I figured out how to do it all mostly on my, by myself. And, um, I think that I, I realized that if, if I wanted this, that I was gonna, I was gonna have to go out for it on my own and that no one was going to help me. And, you know, I had, my family was, was supportive, um, in kind of a mild way. And I, you know, just went, went with that. And I, I tried. And I think that's kind of all we can ever do.
0: So when you were writing those first two novels at 14 and 16, was it I mean, like in your household, was it what's Layla do? Where's Layla? Oh, she's in her room, (laughs) writing, Mm -hmm. you know, writing her stories. Is that kind of how it was?
1: Um, I think that for my first novel, I I think my family knew that I was writing a book, but I just don't think it, um, no one asked very many questions about it. I don't know. <laughs> and then when I was 16, everyone knew I was writing a book and they, um, they would listen to me talk about it sometimes, um. And my family is like very supportive of my work. It's just when I said, Oh, I think I'm going to try and become an author. Mm. That was like, okay, Layla. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good luck <with> and that. <laughs> understandably. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that my family understood from a very young age that I was going to be ambitious and I was mm-hmm. going to, um, to try to do many things at once. And, um, and I w- did and no one was surprised. Um, and I think almost kind of numb to it at a certain point. And, um, and they, they're my biggest supporters and they're also, you know, not always the most enthusiastic of people.
0: I understand that. Were there any teachers in your life that knew that you were doing this kind of writing and were encouraging?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I went to an arts high school and I was in the literary arts department. And so um, we spent three hours a day writing oh. every day in school. And um, and so I had writing teachers who um, a few of them knew that I was writing novels on the side and um, and they were supportive of it. Um, I don't think that there was like a lot of do much of it in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I had one teacher who let me write my novel for a period um, for a semester. And that was helpful. But I think that, um, that most of the time I, I did it on my own time.
0: Do you remember the first time that you showed – a poem or the novels that you were working on to somebody whose opinion really mattered. Do you remember what that was mm-hmm. like? Um,
1: I, sh- I think the first thing that comes to mind is I showed night crawling of earlier draft of night crawling to my partner. Um, after I think, I think she might have been one of the first people who read it, mm-hmm. and it was around the time that I got agented. And um, and I told her that I would let her read it, um, when I was like sure it was good, <laughs> and <laughs> and I let her read it. And I she read it in one day, and then um, the next day she we, we sat down for breakfast and, um, and I like looked at her and I was like, okay, what do you think? Um, and she's such a reader that her opinion really mattered to me because I knew that she would be honest and that she had good taste. And, um, and she told me that she loved it. And, um, and she gave me a couple notes, and um, I think that was probably the, the like, best um, and most important time anyone has read anything.
0: Wow. And what has it been like to hear, I mean, to embark on this in a private way, and that's what that's what writing is for most people, unless, you know, you're someone who shows your work in process to other people. But most mm-hmm. writers are doing this right in a solitary way. But now Mm. to put it out in the world and have, you know, listen to me, ask you about what my own interpretation (laughs) or just have that kind of come back at you from Mm -hmm. the world. I'm I'm curious about what that's like.
1: I mean, at this point, it's it's still very surreal. I. Um, I'm always <laughs> surprised when anyone tells me they've read it. Um, and <laughs> you are? Okay. It, yes, it's 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 a it's such an honor, and it's also um, such a different practice because I am I'm a very private writer, um, and very few people read it before it you know makes it into the world, and now with. Um, with night Crawling coming out I am kind of experiencing for the first time letting my book live um, without me and I I think I, I think of what um, god I think Tony Morrison said it but you know that the the moment you put a book out in the world like y- the author dies essentially, um, because it is not your book anymore. It is living in the world and whatever the reader wants it to be, it will be. Um, and you can't argue with that as the author. And I think that I am definitely experiencing like, okay, it is, um, it's being released into the world. And I am letting it go. And, um, and it's both a really exhilarating feeling and sometimes kind of scary.
0: I mean, there are some reader writers who will say quite proudly, and I think defiantly, look, the book goes out in the world, I don't really care, you know, I've done the work, I don't really care what Mm -hmm. reader not like, They care that readers read it, but they don't really care about that experience that the reader is having. I had a long conversation Mm. about this with Jonathan Franzen, who who I think his mind has changed about it. But initially he would say, that's up to them. I don't even think about Mm -hmm. what it's like right, for that reader to have that experience. And I guess Mm. you're new to this, but how do you think about that?
1: I definitely think about the reader's experience and mm-hmm. I don't think about it when I'm in doing my first draft, but when in, I am in, think about the reader, I think about different types of readers and I kind of try to imagine, um, what it would be like to read it if it was the first time. And, uh, that's how I, I try to go through at least one pass of it, trying to, um, Detach myself from me, the author, and become just a reader. And I think it's really important that I do that because I have this whole world built out. There are scenes that I have, you know, written and taken out. There are like so many details that I knew you were going to know. And that can. Create a bias in the way that I that I think it is going to be read. Um, so I try to always read it for what is actually on the page and and, um, and think about the experience for the reader because I think it is important um, to think about what it's going to be like as um, as someone who reads a lot. I I know what I want to experience when I'm reading and I try to create that experience um, as a writer too. And so I have to think about the reader.
0: I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas, in conversation with Lila Motley about her debut novel, Night Crawling. Lots of buzz, lots of conversation about it. And you hear us developing a bit of, of the the plot and the characters, but also about Lila's experience of being a very young writer and having this book go out into the world and, uh, and what that's like to, um, you know, have written this in your teens and then have this kind of whirlwind experience. Lila, I've asked you if you'll read a scene where Kiara has gone to visit her mother, who's been incarcerated for a crime, and now I think she's in a, in a halfway house, and Kiara summons the courage to ask her mother why she committed what has been a a, a transgressive crime and a devastating crime for the family. And um, if you will read that scene, and then we can talk a bit about how you put it together. Have I explained it well, mm-hmm. or do you want to add something?
1: No, you explained it well. Okay. <laughs> Mama doesn't pause, says... No point in losing sleep over something none of us can change. Like I said, was survival. I pulled the brush once through her hair, knowing how it's gonna hurt. Mama don't make a sound. We've been trying to survive every day since then and I ain't been locked up. You call me when that changes. There are consequences to surviving out here. Just cause you too young to know it yet don't mean I gotta apologize for the truth. I spent every day for years apologizing, praying up some heaven that might forgive me. I don't got no breath left for that. Mama holds her hands up, and I look at them from behind her hair, which is less kinky than both mine and Marcus's, and the creases in her hands are pale, with a trace of lavender, color that shouldn't exist in a palm. Looking at mama's hands, I remember a time when Ale was 14 and I was 13 and she decided that she was going to learn how to read palms. She used my hands to practice, trying to distract me from daddy's approaching death. She would point to the line running vertically up from my wrist and say, See how it splits right there? Means you got two caminas de la vida. You know, ways shit might go down. Then she would look down at the palm reading book from the library resting in her lap. And you gotta make a choice someday. Mama's line doesn't split like mine does, it veers left toward her thumb like it got sidetracked on the way up. I'm coming home. You hear that? Mama's hand waves backward to pat my arm, shake me into getting it. We're gonna go back to normal. I brush faster. Move the bristles in and out of each individual lock and coil. I really just want you to give me Uncle Ty's number, Mama. Please. Mama huffs. You always wantin'. Don't do nobody no good to want.
0: That is Lila Motley reading from her first novel, Night Crawling. There's so much going on in that scene. The first thing I guess I want to say, Lila, is... Kiara's mother is not an unsympathetic character even after we learn what she's done. By design mm-hmm. or does that surprise you to hear me say that or how do you think about it?
1: No, by design. Um, it was really important to me that we understand Kiara's mother as almost a um, a grown-up version of who Kiara could be if things continued the way that they that they are um because kiara's mother she essentially has been caring for these kids and working and her husband um has gone to prison and gets out and then um becomes really sick and um and is in the process of dying and when he finally passes away, she uh, is left to kind of pick up the the burden of the grief and and not really get to experience it fully because she has these kids who need her. And um, and I think in the way that Kiara is um, is caring for everyone and everything, so so has her mother. and she kind of crumbles under at all. And that leads her to, um, to -hmm. prison, which leads her to the halfway house where we see her kind of in a state, um, of mania and, and she has detached Mm -hmm. from reality in so many ways in order to, in order to protect herself, I think. And, um, and so in this scene, she, you know, she's unable to recognize the pain that she has caused her kids, because that would be too painful for her.
0: Okay, so yes, she has, she has kind of detached from her role, her life as a mother. And she's, I guess she's showing Kiara. I I mean, she's hard. This is a survival tactic, I take it, she's showing Kiara that mm-hmm. this is maybe what it takes, who you have to be to survive this. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah. I think she is essentially telling Kiara that you can't, you can't want anything. Right. You can't dream because it will hurt you. And, um, and she's also saying like, you can't feel or it will leave you the way it has left me.
0: Yeah, it's devastating. You started writing the novel as as noted. At, what when you were seventeen? Is that right? Sixteen. Yeah, or 17? like a
1: month before I turned seventeen. Okay.
0: Yeah. And the police corruption plot line that is that is develops in in the novel is drawn mm-hmm. from a real case in Oakland that I looked up to read about. Complicated, mm-hmm. where where a police officer died by suicide and confessed to the sexual abuse of a minor, and there were other mm-hmm. police officers involved in this. Can mm-hmm. you just – what was it? I think you say you remember reading about the case. What was it about that case that began kind of working its way into, hey, I could write around this um, you know, in a novel.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was definitely the first um, instance of police sexual violence that I had ever seen make it to the media, really. And it's one of the only cases that has in the U.S. Um, And so it was 2015, 2016 when this case broke, and it was a huge... Um, it was a huge deal in, in Oakland and in the Bay area, um, kind of consumed our local media for a little while before fading away. Um, and it, was really interesting to me the ways that the media talked about this case mm-hmm. and um, and how the the attention the focus seemed to to always be what what impact is this going to have on the police department on the government is this going to you know tear apart the the system as we know it um, and not you know what does it mean for this young woman involved what does it mean for this harm to have been done and for that to, um, to be something that probably is, has happened many times with this police department and many others. And so I, um, I started researching other cases of police sexual violence, which there are a few that have been reported on. Um, and, and I kind of came to this idea of what, could I do as as a writer how could I center a young black woman as um as you know the harm that was done to her and who she is being the m- most important part of it giving her the narrative control even if she doesn't have a lot of um, control over what happens to her that she can at least control the story around it. And so that's kind of where Chiara was born from.
0: You know, I, I have to agree in coming in with no awareness of this story and reading the reporting, which, which ultimately I think as many as 14 officers in Oakland and eight mm-hmm. officers from other law enforcement agencies mm-hmm. participated in this sexual exploitation. But but I have to concur with you too. It 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 is clear that these men saw that young woman and some of the other young women that were involved in this as bodies to be used. And mm-hmm. so much of the coverage is what will this do? You know, first all the details mm-hmm. of it, and then what will this mean for trust in the police department? There was yeah. very little insight very little analysis of what it means to the women who got swept mm-hmm. up in this. Do you know anything else about what happened to them?
1: Um, yeah, I, I've continued to follow the case. And in my research for Night Crawling, I read um, all of the, essentially the transcripts, oh. um, interviews um, directly from the investigation and um and so i i know that um there were charges a few charges that were made and then dropped and a few suspensions mm-hmm. um and that was those were the really the extent of the consequences for the police officers involved and then for the woman her um her alias is celeste and mm-hmm. she received i think 1 million dollars mm-hmm. in settlement charges that. and that was it um and yeah, it it was like the, the media um, and kind of hasn't really returned to it. Um, and it, it always surprises me when I hear that like no one outside of the Bay Area has ever heard of the case. No.
0: Mm.
1: Um, yeah, that it, it very much was a local um, media issue and that it came, it, it consumed us, but it didn't Else, and I think that um, that also when we put in um, in direct comparison to other instances of police violence, where we we see them, you know, kind of go national mm-hmm. and viral mm-hmm. and everywhere, um, it's interesting to see the ways that this like remained insular despite how what what a huge case it was, um, and. How much evidence there was and, um, and you know, just like how unprecedented this, this was in, you know, in the history of all police departments in the U.S.
0: You know, I wondered when I read the stories about the settlement that she got that, you know, I, I wonder if for many people it was, well, now she's got her million dollars and, mm-hmm. you know, justice has been done and very little thought, which is what, what is so wonderful about your novel, about what it is to have a life exploited like this, turned upside down, forever scarred by that. Yeah. Um, what do you think most people think when they see, she got a million dollars, it's, you know, case closed? Um.
1: I think it depends on who you ask, but I I think that we often have a very narrow sense of what justice is, mm-hmm. and um, either view it at and and we often view it as something that happens in a courtroom, and um, and so because the settlement you know is a civil case, and because of that, mm, I think some people might think that justice was served and. So there is there is no need to continue dwelling on this case, and um, and I think that that view on justice is um, is really limited, and in a system that has really given us no uh, precedent to think that we are going to be um, helped or or served by um, by anything that. Room, I think that um, it, it doesn't make sense to expect that justice will come from that, especially because even, you know, ideas of justice in a courtroom can't change the feeling, they can't change, they can't alter memory, they can't um, really change the way the dynamics that create the need for the courtroom in the first place or the assumed need that we, you know, bring a case into a court thinking that it can, it can change something and the world goes on and often it, it stays in that courtroom. Um, and so I think that it, I wanted to show in Nightcrawling that, um, but the least important thing was what happened in that courtroom. At least, um, it, what happened in in the most tangible form. I think what happened for Kiara internally is important. But um, again, that's not about the way that the system serves us or doesn't serve us. Um,
0: justice. Right. Uh, if I are you li- you're still living in Oakland, right? Yes. Um, if I. Walked into your apartment or your house and walked up to your mm-hmm. bookshelves. Is
1: mm-hmm. there
0: is there a book of poetry that is more dog-eared, more loved than the other ones hmm. on the shelf? Maybe one that you go to. Yes. When, yes. Okay. What
1: is it? Yeah. Um, Nappy edges by Entzaki Shange. Is like I think my most Tell dog years <laughs> poetry collection. Um, I she was one of my the first poets um, and authors that I loved. She's the she's the author of For Colored Girls uh, Who Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough, mm-hmm. um, and that's like a really a famous play. Um, but her other work, I think she isn't quite as well known for. Um, and I've always loved her poetry because of the way that she is kind of unafraid to, um, to change language and to make it her own. And she uses her own syntax. Um, just like even the way it looks on the page is, is different from anything I'd ever seen before. Um, and there's something so unapologetic about it. Um, and I also I love her novel. she's just great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, boy, you had one of the quickest answers of uh, of anyone when I've asked that question, <laughs> and I I spring that out every now and then when I think the answer is going to be interesting, and it was. uh Layla, thank you so much. Thank you for for the time and the the wide ranging conversation. It's really good to talk to you. I'm I'm looking forward to the next time thank we get you. together. Absolutely. <laughs> Layla Motley's novel is called Night Crawling, and she was joining us from Oakland, California.